This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. We need to be balanced and we need to think about these kinds of aspects of the legislation or implementing legislation in terms of what's right for the American society and also how does that stack up relative to what's happening around the world because semiconductors are a global industry. We need to be competitive in all the things that we do. We feature thought leaders at all career levels, where we explore, among other things, the many contributions that women make to the fields of international business, national security, foreign policy, and international development. Does having women in positions of power influence the outcomes of decisions in these fields? Why or why not? Join me, Dr. Kathleen McInnes, director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies for these incredible conversations. Smart Women, Smart Power is partnering with Girl Security for a special series dedicated to conversations between young national security scholars and established national security leaders. My colleague Alexis Day helps moderate these insightful conversations. I hope you enjoy. Hi, everyone. I'm happy to be back with another Girl Security episode. Today, we're joined by Girl Security scholar Jordan Tachibata for a look at the world of semiconductors and how the CHIPS Act plays into this world. To start, Jordan, how did you find yourself engaged with these topics? Yeah, I'm really interested in the national security aspect because I grew up as a Japanese American and during World War II, there were over 120,000 Japanese Americans who were incarcerated in camps in the United States. My grandmother was one of those. And so I grew up learning about national security through that framework. And so I got really interested in the constitutional law aspect. And then as an undergrad, there's an opportunity through my university to intern with the Panetta Institute, which is run by CEO Panetta and former Secretary of Defense, Leon Panetta. And so learning under their guidance really fueled my interest in national security. Regarding chips and semiconductors, I grew up in the Silicon Valley. That's basically all we do here. And so I had a background working at a startup that actually focused on advanced manufacturing of semiconductors. I'm really looking forward to learning with our audience. So thank you for bringing this conversation to the podcast. You are in great company today. Here with us is Kathleen Taffy-Kingscott, Vice President of Strategic Partnerships for IBM Research and a fantastic leader in this field. So over to you, Jordan, to kick us off. Thank you so much, Alexis, and thank you, Taffy, for being here with us. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day. So to start off with the first question, you know, national security, chips, and semiconductors are some terms we've heard a lot. So I'd like to break those down with you. First, what does national security mean to you, and especially within the context of your work? Well, first, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. It's a real opportunity to talk with with you and and other people who may be interested in, in this. So I see national security as being the ability of a nation, of a state, to defend and protect its citizens, its institutions, its infrastructure. It's basically its way of life. It includes protecting our sovereignty, our values, keeping our territory intact, and providing for the prosperity of our nation. If you think back to 1776, we've had nearly 250 years in the United States of national sovereignty, and I think that's benefited all of us, and I desperately want to see it continue. And I think a large part of the United States being able to push the boundaries on that is that we're always on the cutting edge of things. And one area that we've always been on the cutting edge of 
is semiconductors and semiconductor production. You know, we can go back to Moore's law. So can you talk about, you know, what the differences between semiconductors and chips as we talk about, you know, what they are now versus how we started? If you think about semiconductors and chips, basically that means the same thing. They're analogous. But years ago, people used to say, what's the difference between computer chips and potato chips? I think we all understand the difference of that now. So semiconductors basically are circuits or they're materials that can move electrical circuits. A way to think about what's the difference between today and yesterday is that today, semiconductors are much more dense. They require much less power. They have much greater performance than when semiconductors were first invented nearly 50 years ago. And that was done here in the United States. Part of the challenge for semiconductor capability has been characterized by as Moore's Law, which basically prophesizes (laughs) that semiconductor capability will double every two years. And as a result, the way that happens is through semiconductors or transistors becoming smaller and smaller and smaller. So the distance that the electrical charge has to travel is, is reduced. And so the performance can be increased and the power required to generate that is reduced. And this is really a fundamental difference between today and a number of years ago when semiconductors were first created. And years ago when semiconductors were first created, we didn't have half the technology that we do now. And so semiconductors are at the root of everything. It's how we're able to have this conversation right now. So can you maybe talk about some of the other aspects of our lives and the systems that semiconductors are so critical to? Well, think about it. Think about how your daily life um, revolves ultimately around the base technology embedded in semiconductors. So you get up in the morning, you probably you might have electrical alarm clock. There's probably a semiconductor in the alarm clock. You might take a look at your cell phone. Okay, so what, you know, what text messages do you have? What emails do you have? What's the weather? What's the traffic if you're going to go to work someplace? All that is based on semiconductor technology at its foundation. Then you walk into the kitchen and you get something out of the refrigerator. Refrigerator probably has semiconductors controlling the temperature and all kinds of other aspects of the refrigerator. Then you get ready to go out. You might go in a car, you might go on a subway, you might go on a bus, you might just walk. If you're walking, you're probably listening to something on your cell phone as you walk down the street. There you got semiconductors. If you're in a car, a lot of people say cars are just semiconductors on wheels with a motor involved. <laughs> if you're on a if you're on a subway, all that control capability in the subway is fundamentally electronic, which fundamentally it means there are semiconductors at the base. So All of our systems, frankly, in society, whether it's transportation, communication, finance, healthcare, holy smokes, you think about healthcare, think about going into a hospital or going into a doctor's office today, all the the equipment that is involved, or if you go to the dentist's office, oh boy, when's the last time you went to the dentist, right? (laughs) And all of that equipment is controlled by semiconductors, is fundamentally involves semiconductors. So are they are semiconductors critical for the United States and for the rest of the world? Absolutely. They are the a foundational technology that enables the world that we live in today. And the U.S. is the birthplace of semiconductors in this entire industry. 
But it's also worth noting that we no longer produce a majority of them. You know, some reports are saying that we only produce 10% of all semiconductors worldwide. And, you know, anyone who's taken an Econ 101 class, you have to talk about comparative advantage. And so while we may not lead in production anymore, we do lead in that design and innovation. Based on your experience, how do we ensure that we maintain this cutting edge, this bleeding edge on design as we begin to up our domestic production thanks to the CHIPS Act? So the United States leads in design. That is absolutely true. But we also lead in the research and development that it takes to create the designs. And we lead in the manufacturing tooling or the equipment that it takes to manufacture these semiconductors. So how does that happen? And by the way, you're correct. We do not lead in manufacturing by a long shot. I mean, the latest numbers that I've seen are something like U.S. has 12% of worldwide manufacturing capability. That's really dangerous. We also don't lead in packaging. We are behind the eight ball in the packaging capability. So how do we, how do we change the equation here? The number one thing we can do is invest in research and development. Research and development, not just in chemical engineering, but in math, physics, chemistry, engineering, materials science, electrical engineering, computer science. Also, obviously, there are multi-dimensional aspects to understanding how semiconductors are designed, fabricated, prototyped, manufactured, packaged, etc. So we need to lead across a whole variety of research areas in both the basic research and in the advanced research. And an area that is missing today in the semiconductor capability set here in the United States has to do with prototyping. So once you get a design where you think it can, almost ready to move into manufacturing, you need to test it out in a small quantity to make sure that what you're doing here actually works in this very complex fabrication process. Today, we're behind the eight ball in prototyping. And so the CHIPS legislation includes language that would, and funding to enable prototyping capability to be developed here in the United States. And once you prototype, then you can move that prototyped design into a manufacturing capability. So we need to do all of these things. Additionally, we need to think about systems because semiconductors themselves don't do anything. You put the semiconductor into a component package, and then you put the package into a system, and then the systems run whatever the um, application is. So we need to think about computer architectures. We need to think about packaging. We need to think about um, how we can reduce the power requirements because these large systems require a lot of power. So we're working on power uh, reduction. We need to increase the performance. So there are a number of areas where we need to continue to do the fundamental research, the advanced research, the development, and the moving those designs into prototyping. And then we also need to pick up on our packaging capability. The U.S. unfortunately doesn't do large-scale packaging. Most of that is done in, in Asia. By packaging, I mean taking the wafers out of the wafer carriage and slicing and dicing them, assembling them into a component, testing the component and making sure that it works, and then inserting it into a system. So all of those things are critical in semiconductor capabilities, and we need to make sure we have that here in the United States. And you also mentioned Asian manufacturing and packaging. So we have close allies in Asia, in Taiwan, in Japan, and even our own allies in Europe have invested in their own semiconductor sectors. 
how do we ensure that we are maintaining positive relationships with these countries who may be you know, affected by our new push for economic protectionism? How do we protect our industry while still supporting our allies? We, the United States, have close relationships with our traditional allies, with the European Union. The semiconductor capabilities are there, are there in the European Union, particularly some of the manufacturing capabilities and also with research and development with organizations like Fraunhofer and Letty and IMEC. We also have traditionally strong relationships in Korea and Japan. We work to strengthen those relationships. And we also have them, of course, in Taiwan. That's a, that's a very, those are critical set of relationships. Part of the CHIPS legislation that was passed just about a year ago included a State Department-run multilateral fund that is being used to develop nascent capabilities in some of our allies, which are developing nations, including Vietnam, Indonesia, Philippines, Panama, and Costa Rica. And we expect that there will be other nations added to those multilateral partnerships. You think about what's going on in India, for instance. Prime Minister Modi had a state visit here in the United States back in June. President Biden visited India with respect to the G20 meeting just a couple of weeks ago, India is seeking VAB investment that could be very useful. The U.S. and Vietnam just recently signed a comprehensive strategic partnership. The prime minister of Vietnam is coming here to Washington next week, actually, to try to fill out that partnership. So we are working, we, the United States, are working very aggressively to build out semiconductor capabilities with allied nations and with our partners. And we think that this is really an important aspect of how we proceed to provide for the national security and economic vitality of the United States. And talking about attracting talent through funding in the CHIPS bill, there's $2 billion that's been allocated through the DOD for workplace training, job training, and just job training programs in universities. You know, how can we ensure that this investment goes all the way in helping us capture the younger market? Because I think typically the manufacturing profile for someone who works in that industry is getting a little bit older and we need to make sure that we have that workforce there and that workforce development aspect in place. You're absolutely right. A lot of the semiconductor capability, the people with semiconductor capabilities might be what you would call long of tooth. And, and so we need to get young, thoughtful, energetic capability involved. In the many meetings I've attended over the last what, year or so since the CHIPS Act was passed, Every single meeting, there is conversation around workforce development. And actually, the Semiconductor Industry Association recently re released a report that indicates over time, there's something like 57,000 jobs in the United States in the semiconductor industry that are unfilled right now. So we have a major opportunity to bring new people into the system. So there's a lot of thought around integrating some of the traditional workforce development and training activities at major universities with other programs like community college programs and developing valuable curriculum that leads people into the semiconductor area. There's a lot of technical training of existing employees as well as new potential employees that is really valuable in the manufacturing process activity. There's much interest in actually going earlier than community colleges, but going back into K through 12, encouraging young people, really young kids, <laughs> girls and boys, to 
understand how important and how much fun it can be to engage in technical activities and to learn the basics of biology and science and physics and chemistry and math at an early age and to see how those kinds of skills, those kinds of disciplines can be applied in life. I think that's one of the challenges, particularly at the K through 12 age set. People think about, learn about mathematics, but it doesn't seem to apply to anything that they do in their day-to-day life. So if we can make algebra, geometry, trigonometry seem real, show how it's applied in real life, I think it'll be useful in encouraging kids to get into the STEM fields and then to provide programs that encourage them along the way. Once they get into elevated schooling, whether it's you know junior college or college or graduate school, have internships and mentorships and bring those kids and co-ops, bring those kids into the real life process of research, development, prototyping, manufacturing, so that they see this is, this is really fun. It's really exciting. And there's something new to be learned every single day. Coming from Silicon Valley and the tech industry as a whole, when you look at the C-suite level executives, we're getting better, but it is still predominantly male. When we talk about chips funding, when we talk about moving the needle for national security, how important is it that we include women in this conversation? Because women are going to be a big part of a national security conversation for the next decades to come. Well, thanks for that important question. I think it's really, really, really critical to get women and girls involved. First off, women and girls are about 50% of the population. So let's just think about it that way. Don't you want to have the best minds, whether they're male, female, trans, LGBTQ, whatever? We want to have the best people involved in this. And I think for young girls in particular, to encourage them to learn how to compete, how to win and how to lose, what to do when you win, think how exhilarating that is, but how to pick yourself up off the ground and get back on the on the ranks when, when you lose. And I think particularly young girls need to think about being the best at whatever they do, not the best girl, but the best, and to really understand the contributions that they can make to society, to the way we live, and to their own families and to themselves. And think about the self-esteem that grows by competing and winning and losing and growing in the whole process. So I do think it's really critical that we all learn these uh, characteristics and grow from them and, and contribute to our way of life. And Taffy, I do have to give you credit because mentorship is such an important part of it and getting people in the door, especially young women. And you've been in the industry, you know, you're an industry vet. I'll say that we stand on your shoulders when we talk about these types of issues. And so can you talk a little bit more about your background and breaking into the industry and how it's changed for you up until this point? Well, thank you. That's a that's um, a personal story, but I think it's probably similar to lots of women who've been around the industry for a long time. I've been at IBM for 50 years. So when I joined IBM, I was a, a programmer. I'd been at EPA as a programmer for a little bit. I started off selling typewriters door to door, which is a long way from what I do now. <laughs> but what happened was, you know, the industry grew and opportunities presented themselves and people had to stand up and say, okay, count me in. I want to compete for it. So when an opportunity arose to move out of selling typewriters and copiers and dictation equipment to going down to 
onto Capitol Hill and selling ideas for IBM company. I said, yes, of course, I'd love to do that. So the question was, do you have enough willingness to change and to grow and to learn and to test yourself and to put yourself into difficult situations that you might not have ever thought in your life that you would be doing (laughs) and being willing to say, oh, okay, I'm going to give it a shot. Let's see what happens. And I think that's um, part of what's happened to me. IBM is a great company. Many opportunities. There are lots of great companies. There are lots of great companies. And I think the chance that people take to, or to take chances and to look forward, not backward, but look forward and say, well, if I were to do this, how could I contribute? How would it enable me to do something even further? And how would it affect my daily life? That daily life piece is also really critical. And I think it's really important for organizations to think about how their opportunities affect the lives of their employees, particularly for women, but also for men. How do you take care of kids? How do you take care of your, maybe you have parents or relatives that you need to care for? How can you put this all together into a balanced package? Thank you so much, Taffy. And I also want to circle back to another point that you mentioned earlier and talking about the childcare aspect and employers providing opportunities for their employees to pay it back. Within the CHIPS Act, there is a provision where I think the number is if there is about $150 million in investment, the company must provide childcare services for facility employees and construction employees. What will be the impact of that for women and families? That's a very difficult question. Now, on the one hand, childcare is, is, is really critical for families and um, you just can't get around it. I have now a grandson who's 20 months old and he runs around like a, like a gay maniac. <laughs> you know, he's, so, he's so busy. And, you know, you couldn't possibly walk out the door and not take care of little kids like that or, or other kids all the way through high school. So childcare is something that is a, can be a limiting factor if people don't have access to it, or it can be an enabling factor if you have, if you have confidence in the childcare provider. So how this is going to work at the end of the day, I think it'll be useful for the people who work in these factories or build these facilities. One of the things we have to consider though, as an American is what's the competitor doing around the world? And in some cases, like for instance, in Europe, the child care situation is probably more robust than here in the United States. Elsewhere around the world, I'm not so sure. So we need to be balanced and we need to think about these kinds of aspects of the legislation or implementing the legislation in terms of what's right for the American society and also how does that stack up relative to what's happening around the world? Because semiconductors are a global industry. We need to be competitive in all the things that we do. Taffy, I want to say thank you so much again on behalf of myself and just women everywhere for what you do and what you have done for us. So thank you so much for your time again. I really appreciate the conversation and all the insights. Well, look, it's very, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. I don't get the opportunity to do something like this very often. And it's uh, right here at my heart to, to have this conversation. So thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you both so much, Kathleen and Jordan, for taking the time to join us today. I feel really empowered by so many different aspects of this conversation. Um, I learned a lot, and to our audiences, I hope you learned something too. Thanks all. Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
or wherever you listen to great content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at SmartWomen, or you can follow me on Twitter at KJ one Thanks for listening, and join us next time.